I will be reading from Leviticus 23, and it reads as follows. Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to B'nai Yisrael and tell them, When you have come into the land which I give to you, and reap its harvest, then you are to bring the Omer of the first fruits of your harvest to the Kohen. He is to wave the Omer before Adonai to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Shabbat, the Kohen is to wave it. On the day when you wave the Omer, you are to offer a male lamb without blemish, one year old as a burnt offering to Adonai. The grain offering with it should be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to Adonai for a soothing aroma. Its drink offering with it should be a quarter of a gallon of wine. You are not to eat bread, roasted grain, or fresh grain until this same day, until you have brought it, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statue forever throughout your generation in all your dwellings. Then you are to count from the morrow after the Shabbat, from the day that you brought the Omer of the wave offering, seven complete Shabbat, Shabbat. Until the morrow after the seventh Shabbat, you are to count 50 days and then present a new grain offering to Adonai. You are to bring out of your houses two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour. They are to be baked with hamats as first fruits to Adonai. Thank you, Sharon. It's always good to be in the midst of the busy season of the Mo'adim. Mo'adim is the appointed season that um, is mentioned at the beginning of this chapter a couple of times. And um, let me just take a moment and talk about what Mo'adim means because we typically, uh, uh, script, let me back up, um, in Scripture, there are two types of time. There is this kind of time that we are typically bound by. You know, we are uh, preoccupied with, okay, the clock is ticking and I have to be here and there and I need to go. I have things to do. And scripturally, there, there is another term, both in Greek and in Hebrew, that has the sense of appointed time. In other words, um, it's not our schedule, but rather it is God's schedule. He has a calendar. He has laid things out. And as we learn to focus on those very special times that he's laid out for us, then we experience his blessing in a way that we don't during other times. Now, let me be very quick to point out that... I firmly believe that the Lord's presence is with us all the time, but when God gives us an invitation, when he beckons to us, and he says, y'all come, y'all come, now you hear? <laughs> then we can do one of a couple of things. We can either say, no, I'm busy, I'm not interested, I have things to do, or we can say, yes, God, I am going to do that. And here at the beginning uh, of Leviticus 23, uh, of course, one of the um, portions that's highlighted that stands out is the Shabbat because it is between, it is sandwiched between verses 2 and 4, which simply means that the Shabbat in God's calendar is a very important season, very important appointed time. In other words, a um, a date with God, as it were. And so he invites us to come, and we want to come. The next season, then, of course, is, is Passover, Pesach, which we celebrated about a month ago. And then we come to um, the first fruits, which takes place actually during Passover week. Uh, on the second day of Passover. And as you may or may not know, um, in biblical Israel, there were actually a couple of first fruit seasons. 
We're going to talk about the second first fruit um, in just a few weeks when we get to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. But um, and, and I mentioned some of this when we talk about the resurrection a couple of weeks ago, and I want to spend some more time on the first feast of first fruits, and that is the first fr fruits of barley. Now, according to what we find de in Deuteronomy, uh, in biblical Israel, there were seven basic crops uh, of which barley was the first one. It was the first one to pop typically in March and uh, in April. And uh, God gives instruction for that as he does for everything else. In fact, as Michael pointed out uh, earlier uh, in the drush um, in the Torah service, the center of the Torah is in chapter 19 because it speaks about, it has a very, very crucial instruction from God. You will be holy, kedoshim, as I am holy. In other words, because I am morally set apart, I can't stand anything with evil, anything with sin, then because you are my people, I've chosen you, I've selected you, then you are also to be set apart, you are to be kadosh, kadosh la donai. And so everything in the life of an Israelite was geared and focused towards that. From the time they got up in the morning till the time they went to, to sleep at night, everything was spelled out for them to one de degree or another in the Torah because they were to be set apart. So even the, t the kind of clothing uh, the people of Israel wore uh, was defined in the Torah. So the, the children of Israel did not wear 50% polyester 50% cotton. Not that we had polyester back in those days, but um, they were not to mix the weave of, of, different, um, of different material. And then, of course, we come to um, the, the kinds of foods the people of Israel could eat. There were certain foods that they could eat, certain foods they cannot eat. And uh, last Shabbat, we looked at uh, Metzorah and Tazriah, the instructions having to do with uh, ritual cleansing. Um, and from time to time, we see instructions having to do with how the children of Israel were to engage in, in battle. In other words, warfare was defined. Everything was defined. And so you want to step back and say, okay, what is that about? Is it really about uh, health and welfare kinds of reasons? And some people look for that and, f and find some of that in the Torah. For example, uh, you're not to eat porcine material. <laughs> and, um, and people, of course, point out the, the fact that if you don't cook pork, pork properly, uh, you can get um, disease from it and as is the case with other types of, of foods. But that really breaks down uh, real quickly. For instance, if it comes to animals that are not considered kosher, such as a horse. Um, I know we're not really <clears throat> predisposed to eat horse, horses, especially after we ride them. Um, there's really nothing innately unclean about horse flesh. And and so you have to step back and say there's really larger picture, and the larger picture is that in everything that the people of Israel were to do, they were to be different. They were to be set apart. Uh, from the time got up in the morning till the time they went to bed at night, their life was to be defined by the fact that they were different. They were set apart as God's people. And by the way, also, as was pointed out earlier, this is something that is carried over into those of us who follow Yeshua today, and that is that we, too, are called to be set apart. Now, things aren't as spelled out in every detail as they were in, in the times, in biblical times, because remember that the Torah was God's 
um, constitution for the nation of Israel. Um, however, the basic underlying principles that we find in the Torah are to be carried out by us who follow Yeshua. And, and so that is what we endeavor to do because we too want to be people who are defined as holy. Not that there are uh, halos around us, um, but that our lives reflect the basic reality that God's presence resides in us. And we live in a pretty mashugi, pretty whacked out world today. I don't need to spell that out. I don't want to dwell <clears throat> on the evils that we all see from the news and Facebook and so on. Um, and yet, God's demand for us to be a holy people has not changed. In fact, the imperative, the urgency for us to be holy people is, is even, has even increased more today than ever before because, as Yeshua tells us, we are the light of the world. And if we are not a holy people, if we don't reflect God's holy standards, then what can the world around us expect to see? What kind of moral standards can the world see unless we are the ones who are exhibiting this uh, call to holiness as, as we see here in the Torah and elsewhere? And so the portion that we read today focuses on that. And at first blush, you look at that and you say, this doesn't make sense. This is like the rest of Leviticus, uh, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so I'm going to do the Evelyn Wood speed reading uh, treatment, zip through it, and then get to the good parts, you know, the stories and, and so on. We do that at our own peril because uh, embedded in the Torah portion are some basic realities that we need to discern and extract and then learn to apply, including this portion that doesn't seem to apply to us because none of us are farmers. Because I don't know if anybody here is a farmer. And so um, we look at this and say, how does this apply to me? Well, let me tell you. A um, little story. A number of years ago, I won't tell you how many years ago, Joy and I uh, ventured to a place called the uh, Sand Dunes in Colorado. And I was brave enough, foolish enough to insist that I was going to make it all the way to the top. You know, it's a guy thing. Uh, if, there's, if there's a mountain, I have to climb it just because it's there. Uh, Joy had better sense, and she went down. It was hot. And um, so for me, I had to get all the way to the top. And um, as I get to the top, the images that I have is not of more sand, but rather having uh, finding a nice shady spot and then having a gigantic glass of something cool to drink. You know what I'm saying? And so the notion uh, of me getting down and then having to wait for several hours until... I would actually be able to get a cup of water or a cup of iced tea was something that just wasn't on the screen. And part of what we see here is that God, because he is who he is, demands that his people give him first dibs. In other words, that if, if I were to come down and get a cup of cold water that I would give the first part to God. This is not something we can wrap our arms around because it's highly un-American. Um, our culture, our society is very much focused on the individual, me, myself, my family, and so on. And so here we have a portion that really uh, stretches the imagination of the people of Israel in a couple of major ways. First of all, you may recall where this portion is given. Leviticus, um, Vaikra, 
which by the way means and he called God called to Moses from from the uh, the tent of the meeting these instructions were given when Israel was parked in front of Mount Sinai now regardless of the controversy some people think Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula some people think it's in Saudi Arabia regardless of where the geography the geographical location is you know that Mount Sinai was not a cool place barren place without a whole lot of vegetation and here God challenges the people of Israel to see not the facts on the ground which is barren desolation very little water but he challenges the people of Israel to look beyond that by faith into what he is going to do at some point in the future which by the way as you may recall will be another 40 years because people of Israel weren't interested in listening to God at that point uh, and had to go round and round and round just like we do you know we hear God's voice in one in one form or another and then we have the foolish chutzpah not the holy chutzpah to say to argue with God and say no uh, uh, you're God but I'm right and so we go round and round and round for 40 years but in any event at some point we get to listen and here God says to Moses when you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest now again remember folks these individuals were not farmers they were slaves now they might have done some agriculture but they are in in the desert and God is saying to them that at some point in the future they're going to enter into the good land as he describes it as a land flowing with milk and honey now I suspect that at least some of us listening would have said right of course land flowing with milk and honey all I can see is different shades of sand and rock and a little bit of of water and you want me and you're talking to me about entering into a land flowing with milk and honey click and this is much like what God instructed the people of Israel at this point I have things for you I have things for you um, not to instantly not today or tomorrow but I have things for you and I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey and when you get there here's what I expect you to do the first thing is you will not take what you get and take for yourself but you will get you will take the things that you get and you're going to give me the first the first dibs this is a principle that to one degree or another we really struggle the principle of first fruits the notion that everything belongs to God he gives us everything that we have and that he deserves he has the right to demand that he receives what is off the top the first section and the best one that is what scripture refers to here as bikurim the first fruits and you will bring that as a korban korban is an offering but it has the sense of something that you bring as you draw near to god comes from a verb meaning to draw near and our people the nation of Israel had a hard time listening to God as very much human nature you know you remember earlier in Exodus when the, the manna was given the manna was given and the Lord said take as much as you need and some people said no I'm gonna take as much as I need as much as I want and a little extra and you remember what happened to the manna it got it got rotten and it stank um, same thing with the Shabbat you don't go out and collect the manna on the Shabbat um, there was none so 
the point simply is God puts a vision before us of what he expects to do and then he defines for us reality of how he expects us to live within his reality. Very difficult for us to get our arms around um, because we are so geared, we're so oriented towards living life based on the facts on the ground. And yes, I know we need, we need to deal with the facts on the ground uh, unless we happen to be these Meshuggi people that go up on top of the roof and wait for aliens to come and get them. Yes, we need to deal with the facts on the ground. But God's reality always stretches us, stretches our faith. And it does that with the people of Israel. So the nation was to come, and when the first crop would come, barley, they were to take and bring it. Um, and here in Scripture, it's called Omer, and I'll explain that Omer can also have another meaning besides barley. Um, they were to bring the first and the best. And um, initially here it speaks about bring a sheaf, but uh, by the first century, this had developed into something much more elaborate as the Pharisees and the rabbis were um, in the habit of doing and taking and defining and expanding things. So uh, the day before the Passover, uh, the Sanhedrin, which was the um, religious supreme court of the land, uh, sent representatives to the fields of barley around Jerusalem and they looked for the the best and they, they inspected and looked for the best and then they tied um, strings around those who were, the f who were the best and who were to be brought uh, to the temple's first fruits. And so um, on the second night of Passover, which was the 15th of Nisan, the barley was harvested and it was a big deal uh, ceremony um, the fields were lit and by the way you wonder why it was done at night well that's the beginning of the day uh, according to Jewish tra Jewish tradition um, and s three of the most respected individuals were selected and they were given the task of harvesting enough uh, of the barley to be brought to the temple uh, typically, they harvested, each of them harvested 10 omer. Omer is also a measure, a uh, couple of quarts. So 22 quarts of barley, it's, it's uh, roughly what, five gallons of barley. It's a fair amount. And uh, was taken to the temple and it was threshed. You know what threshing involved? He threw it up and let the, the chaff come down. It was dried or scorched, ground to flour, and sifted 13 times until what emerged was real fine barley flour. And uh, then it was mixed with oil and uh, frankincense, and it was waved. Now remember that in Scripture, when we talk about the wave offering, is not the kind of wave that you do in, in a sports stadium, you know, when everybody gets up and waves. Um, but traditionally, the, the priest would take um, the, the flower and wave it back and forth and up and down. And uh, then a tenth of it was taken and burned, and then the rest of it uh, was eaten by the priest. So at that point, after all of that was done, the people of Israel were able to eat from the barley crop. Now you say, this is uh, kind of a stretch here. Well, yes. And it was designed to communicate a basic message. And that is that when you think of God and when you pray to God and when you come into his presence, um, Exodus tells us, you will not come into my presence empty-handed. In other words, if you come before God, coming to Him empty-handed means 
that you're showing a great measure of disrespect. Why? Because he's the king. He's the king of kings. Do you come before um, the greatest uh, official empty-handed? No, you do all kinds of preparation. And so the Lord said to the people of Israel, when you come, you are to come prepared. You are to, to bring the offering. And in addition to that, in addition to the barley, they were also to bring uh, a lamb that was a yearling without, de without defect. Now, if you remember from the Passover story, that was exactly what the people of Israel were, were commanded to do uh, when they brought that Passover lamb. It was to be a yearling. It was to be without defect. Why did it have to be a yearling and not two years old or three years old? Well, typically... An animal that was a yearling was not used for any, any other purpose. It was kadosh. It was holy to God. It belonged to him. And so this is part of what God said to the people of Israel. I have prior claim to who you are, to your resources, to your money, to your time, and to your energy and your gifts. In other words, life doesn't belong to you. I know if it was any, someone other than God, you, you would look a, a little funny and you say, you're full of chutzpah or something else. But this is something that the Torah defines for us. And I would say that because we, we don't spend enough time digging into it, that we miss some really some basic and profound lessons about who God is and what he expects from us. We often have this notion, you know, this user-friendly kind of notion of God that um, he is basically a creature of our formation. You know, we kind of take him and put him in a box for a rainy day and and uh, pray when we need to, and then, hi, bye, I'm out of here. Totally different, radically different perspective of what we see in the Torah. God, because he is the king and we are his subjects, he has a prior claim on, on our life and everything that we have. So what, what we see in verse 11 here, that the priest was to take the sheaf for or the, the, the grain before the Lord, so that it will be accepted on your behalf. Now, this is an interesting expression. Why did it need to be accepted? This is something we see elsewhere in the Torah. Hebrew word there, ratzon, um, good pleasure. Uh, we see that in, in other offerings. And the point simply is, when we take God's instruction seriously and we don't do it just to just to get by we don't cut corners but we do it wholeheartedly then we have God's good pleasure in other words we have God's smile upon us that he knows that we are serious about acknowledging his sovereignty and his rule in our life and verse 13 here in this chapter, we're told that they were to take the grain offering, etc., etc., and they were to bring it, and it would be um, an offering made by fire to the Lord, a pleasing aroma. You say, it's kind of odd. It gets a little weird, especially when you talk about animal sacrifices being sweet-smelling incense in God's nostrils. Okay, what's, what's that about? Well... Think about your sense of smell. And remember that your sense of smell is probably the most powerful of, of your senses. You sense something, a whiff of something, and, and it brings you back to the time when you were a kid or you have some other experience. And so that simply means it, it's human language uh, that conveys the fact that when God 
sees what the people are doing, then he's pleased. He's pleased. It's hard for us to understand that God who formed and fashioned us is an emotional being. Where did our emotions come from? Our emotions came from God. And our being able to be pleased and enjoy things came from God, who is able to enjoy our response to him, our wholehearted response. And so that's what God is saying to Moses, that the people of Israel, the farmers, were to bring their first fruits of the barley, and then later on we'll see also of the of the wheat and pomegranate and grapes and so on and so forth, and bring it to God before they ate anything else. After the people of Israel went through the first fruit ceremony, then the merchants were free then to go out and, and do business with, with the product. Verse 14 ends with this statement, you must not eat any bread or roasted grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come wherever you live. Now why lasting ordinance for generations to come? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, we do these things as reminders of what has taken place in our life previously. Our relationship with God, our growth spiritually, our getting to know Him, our maturing spiritually comes about as we learn to invest and add these signs, steps of obedience to God step by step by step by step. And we need that ourselves from year to year to learn to honor God and to obey Him and to remember what He did back here and that builds us up and strengthens us and encourages us. But it's also something that we need to do for, for the kids that we just dismissed earlier because they need to hear and receive what has become part of our reality so that they too will embrace the truth of what it means to be holy, kadosh, to the Lord. Remember what happened at the end of Joshua's generation. There was a basic breakdown of communication. The people of Israel at that point did not communicate that to their children. Remember what happened, that the next generation grew up and was absolutely wild. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and the result was that Israel entered a period that can be described as a spiritual sewer. It's not fun reading going through the book of Judges. So Israel brought the offering, first fruits of barley, and then there was this long period of waiting. 49 days of waiting. Now, this is not to imply that nothing, absolutely nothing took place because first fruits of barley meant that was the beginning and towards the end you're beginning to see other fruits coming about. But it was a long stretch. Now again, if you're a farmer, you can relate to that and understand it. We Most of us can't because we go to the store and get something if it's not from Florida, it's from California. If it's not from California, it's from Chile. Uh, we, we get our fruits and vegetables, you know, sometimes more expensive, sometimes less. We, do, we don't go through the angst that, that a farmer goes through. If you are aware, the farmers here in Colorado had gone through some very difficult years. Severe drought and um, in biblical times, in addition to the drought, you also had these little critters, the, the locusts, who would come massive amounts and consume everything that was, that was there. So you brought the offering to God as a first fruits, 
There was a double meaning to it. First of all, it was an expression of thanks for what God had already done. Okay, God, this is visible. I can see it. I thank you for it. But also was an expression of faith, trusting God that somehow he would bring you through and that at the end of this period of waiting, you will actually have something else. It was a faith stretcher. And so the Lord gave some basic instruction. It's not a whole lot here in uh, verse 15. From the day after the Shabbat, the day you brought the sheaf of the, of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days to the day after the seventh Shabbat and then present in a, an offering of the new grain, which was to be wheat, etc. <clears throat> and like anything else, there was arguments on exactly what was meant by the the morning after the Shabbat, um, which I won't get into, other than to say uh, we today operate by the rabbinic or Pharisaic uh, explanation that it's the sixth of ER. Why did God say to the nation of Israel, you are to count off 49 days? I mean, is it is it just the matter of Okay, you have a calendar, you check off, you cross off the days and say, okay, uh, day 49 is finally getting, getting here, maybe. Could also be about the fact that there's some symbolism. Remember that in Scripture, uh, the number seven is very significant because it speaks about creation. Um, regardless, of the reasons, the underlying reasons simply meant that during this time, the Israelite farmer was to wait. This is a four-letter word which we hate, and I'm sure the Israelite farmers hate it as well. Um, none of us liked to wait, especially if there's uncertainty at the end of it. Lord knows in, in this day and age with the economic situation being what it is, waiting is a tough one. You really have no assurance that the end of the waiting period, what you really need will actually be there. Faith says that if God tells you to wait, then he has a reason for you waiting and at the end of the period what you need will be there. However, we wrestle, we struggle with faith. For none of us, faith is something that comes absolutely naturally and absolutely easily. Then it wouldn't be faith. And so when God tells the people of Israel to, to count you know that there was a strong element of waiting and and saying, okay, God, I, I, I will trust you somehow. So tradition has taken that, those fairly simple instruction and expanded it somewhat. Um... And so there is a ritual of counting the Omer, Sfirata Omer. By the way, do you all know what day of the Omer this is? 28, yes. How about that? Uh, and you count an evening, and you say, today is 28 days, which is four weeks of the Omer. And there's a blessing goes with it. There's, ever, there's a blessing for ev almost everything, including the czar, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the counting of the Omer. And, and I, I saw in the more observant versions of that another blessing that really captured my, my attention. And it goes as follows. May the merciful one restore us, restore unto us, 
the service of Bet HaMikdash, the temple, to its place speedily in our day, Amen Selah. I think we can agree with that. And people go even so far as to divide the 49 weeks into segments, each of which has, has a, a special emphasis. So this, this week has the emphasis of... You ready? Has the emphasis of perseverance. How do you learn to persevere through a long period of counting? It's difficult, isn't it? And part of the purpose of counting in tradition today, in traditional Judaism, is the preparation and anticipation for the giving of the Torah, which according to the rabbis comes at Shavuot, but it, it's it's a, a not a comfortable time, folks. I want to emphasize that again and again. Not a comfortable time for us because we we don't come out of the womb learning to wait. You know, think about about your kids. What is their basic response to waiting? Ah! I want. You give it to me now or else I'm going to be screaming. And I'm going to scream some more until you give me what I want and need and then I'll shut up. We have the joy of um, taking care of our latest granddaughter and uh, we're getting exposed to uh, new and fresh lessons of what that's about. But, folks, seriously, what we want to take away from that is the basic principle that the good things that God has for us come as we learn to wait on Him. And waiting is not a four-letter word. It's not a dirty word. It is not dead time. It is not wasted time as we consider it. Because of, of our... Um, Hyperspeed Mishigas, we have the mindset that says um, the time that I spend waiting is an absolute waste. And I need to buzz through it and get to the other side and get what I need already. What the Word of God tells us over and over and over and over again is that some of God's finest work in our life comes as we learn to waste. Because then we have the preparation, we have the anticipation of the good things that God wants to, to do for us. So that when they finally come, we learn to appreciate them and value them. And by the way, this period of counting of the Omer is something we find Yeshua doing with his disciples as well. First of all, he gave them an amplified version of the Torah. We see that in Acts chapter 1, Yeshua began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions. Again, remember that the basic word for Torah is instruction. Giving instruction to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he has chosen. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of heaven. 40, obviously, is very symbolic. Remember that Moses was up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And Yeshua was conveying his instruction to the disciples during those 40 days. And then he says, now that you have that, I want you to wait. Here in Acts Chapter 1, he says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John immersed you with water, but in a few days you will be immersed with the Holy Spirit. Then you will receive power 
when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the outer parts of the earth. So do we want the goodies from God? Yes. Do we want to wait for them? No. Let's be real, folks. We really don't. We want what we want. We want it now. In an ideal world, God would push a button, trap door would open, we would have a set of pills uh, for strength, wisdom. You know, each day we would take a pill for wisdom, pill for strength, uh, money, etc. And the waiting for us is as difficult as it was for the Israelite farmers. It seems like a period of doldrums. By the way, you, you may have heard that in, in the times when uh, ships were sailing, uh, ever so often they would cross the equator and they would just sit there. Because for whatever vagaries of weather, um, there was no wind. And they would sit there for days and weeks and nothing would happen. Then every so often, patterns would change, and a storm would come, tornado would come. But during those weeks, and that's why they were called the doldrums. They were stuck there. And there are times we feel like we are stuck in a waiting pattern. We get frustrated. We want to move. We want to make progress. And then over a period of time, we finally get the fact that God has a plan. He is sovereign. By the way, God's sovereignty means two things. He has a plan. He has the power to bring that plan into effect. And we eventually get it. We eventually get that God's good things, God's best things will come to us as we learn to wait. And so what we learn to do is to position our sails in such a way that when the wind comes, we're there, we're ready, we're prepared. This is what Isaiah describes as follows. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. So each of us has areas in our life where we need for God to stretch forth his arm and, and act decisively, bring things about in our life. We as a congregational family, as a mishpacha, expect God to do likewise in us, to develop us, to establish us, to grow us, to bring us to a point where we are doing what he's called us to do more fully. And for us who have a heart for the nation of Israel, we're looking for God's divine wind to come on our people. Remember what Zechariah chapter 12, what God speaks in Zechariah chapter 12 where he says, I will pour out my spirit of grace and supplication on the house of Israel and on Judah. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn as one mourns for an only child. We're waiting for that, folks. We're seeing uh, whiffs of wind from time to time. I want to just close with a, um, a little clip that I saw on YouTube. Yes, I, I confess I watch YouTube. Um, this was a, uh, an I interview with an Israeli professor, a history professor, who describes himself as an atheist. And you know what he was talking about? He was talking about Yeshua. Could have knocked me over with a feather. He talked about how then for, for 2,000 years our people, the nation of Israel, has allowed Yeshua, and he used the word Yeshua, 
to be to be taken away and he basically says it's high time for us to reclaim him because and I'm not going to say that he is ready to sign on the dotted line and say I'm accepting Yeshua as the Messiah he's simply saying look I want to recognize Yeshua as one of our great people like Moses and like Jeremiah that's not something I would have heard when I was a child. I'm seeing little bits of wind coming. I'm expecting the fuller, the fuller version of the wind to come for the nation of Israel, for, for all the nations, and also for us. Each of us waits for the divine wind to come and fill our sails. Let's make a commitment to wait in faith, in patient faith, for God to do that. Avinu Malkeinu, Father God, we thank you for your work in our life. We thank you for your persistent work in our life. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful especially, Lord, through all the seasons when we are unfaithful. And, Lord God, we thank you how you present yourself to us in all kinds of times, all kinds of moments when we least expect you. And so, Lord, yes, we thank you that uh, you appear as you appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Lord, you appear to us today. We thank you for that, Lord. Pray for each of us, Lord, where our faith is wobbly. I pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen us with all power to persevere, to persevere joyfully. And, Lord God, to learn to receive the good things, the blessings you have for us as we learn to wait. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.